Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, we talk with Berm Chisholm, co-founder of the band. We talk about how he and his brother Greg broke into the accessories business with their watch band, the early Utah outdoor industry, and his motivations for continuing to work in the outdoor business. So welcome back, everyone. This is uh, Chase Anderson, um, and uh, we're another episode of the History of Gear series that we've been doing, our oral history project to document the history of the outdoor industry. And today I've got Burn Chisholm, um, founder of the band. Um, another Utah company. Um, we've been trying to piece together Utah history, and and I know you're very involved with a lot of the other Utah brands that we've documented and and founders that we've talked with. So it's it's great to have you here contributing your your story um, and contributions to Utah outdoor history. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Chase. It's it's great to be part of this. Yeah. We were all part of the Utah outdoor history and. Uh, with our companies and a lot of the companies we were talking about earlier, just all friends. And we were all kind of diving into this together. So, well, that's the interesting thing about all of this is the more that I talk to people, the more I hear about, you know, the other companies, the other founders that were um, trying to do similar things or trying to, you know, get into this business at the time, it was so tight knit. That's, that's kind of, that just is very outdoor industry, right? That everyone kind of seems to know everyone, or at least they did at that time. And especially, you know, in a place like Utah or, you know, these, you know, companies that were starting up in certain regions there, how could you not know, you know, these people in, in the, in the same business, but. Yeah. Um, and we were all friendly competitors. Um, some of us had similar products, but we also back in the day, we kind of kept to our own little lane, so to speak and let everyone do what they did well. And then after a while, everything started crossing over, but we saw the same people at shows. We saw the same people at events. Um, and we were all trying to hustle with our, with our own little product lines. Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back first, just to your origins of, you know, and connections initially to the outdoors and then to the outdoor industry. Cause I, I'm curious, did you have a first moment, you know, growing up where you, you know, developed a connection with the outdoors in general uh, versus the outdoor industry. What was that, you know, first connection for you? Yeah. So I'm a New York kid. I grew up right outside of Manhattan um, in Rye, New York, little town. 
And we were always just an outdoor family. We were you know, always in the water in Long Island Sound. We'd ski in the winters in Southern Vermont, um, a lot of tennis, a lot of just very active family, both active parents. So we were always outside and that's kind of where we lived, played, how we did things. So the outdoor industry was just always part of it. And then in my uh, late teens, we started windsurfing and teaching windsurfing back when it first came out. We were always just playing around, you know, we were in the water a lot, we were in the mountains a lot, and it just was all part of it. And that's actually uh, how I ended up out in Utah. Um, my grandfather on my mom's side is full Swiss, I'm half Swiss, and he used to come to Salt Lake City, especially Little Cottonwood Canyon, and ski at Alta because he said there was no place in the country that he had seen that reminded him more of the Alps than Little Cottonwood Canyon and Alta. So we kept continue to hear about this magical place out in Salt Lake City called Alta. My parents uh, came out here as you know young adults and skied at Alta. My uh, grandfather actually took 16 millimeter footage at Alta. I've donated that to the ski archives. Uh, and I came out to the University of Utah when I was 17 years old and um, have been here pretty much ever since. So. So I, I always like to make some, some parallels here and tie some of our oral history episodes together, but um, it seems like a, I don't know, other, other people that we've talked to, there's, there's kind of the similar trajectory, right. Of um, especially some of the big gear pioneers, right. Like, um, you know, moving out from the East coast and coming to the mountains, right. Coming, coming to the Rockies and, and starting a company or getting acquainted with the terrain here. And, and that inspires you know, creating a, a brand of some kind that's, that's been, we've hear, heard that story a little bit. And especially in Utah, you have people like Kevin um, of cool. I know he found his way. We, we haven't talked with Kevin and documented the story, but I've heard a little bit, you know, came out to Utah to ski and then never left and then built cool. Um, yep. You know, so it's, it's interesting how much um, I know the mountains and the ski industry in particular was, was such a draw and brought people around this same era um, and, and your, your cohort, um, you know, eventually goes on to start, you know, companies. Um, so I, I just think that that pathway and that trajectory is really interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts there around the similarities. I could name half a dozen. I mean, and I think you've interviewed se several of them. Todd Aronson from Tsunami did the same. Mm -hmm. So did his partner, Sherry, uh, uh Wally from, um, Volley came out from back East as well. We all were drawn to the mountains, all drawn to skiing. Again, we grew up skiing in southern Vermont, which was boilerplate ice and cold. And coming out here to powder was just something none of us had ever seen. And on and on from someone like Lee Cohen, who's shot iconic photography at Alta for the last 35 years. His story is the same, came out from back east. And we've all kind of stayed. Um, you know, I, I moved here at 17 years old. I started teaching skiing, so I was up at Alta. I worked, fortunately, I got to ski with Alfangen and work for the Alfangen Ski School for many years. And that kind of put me into that outdoor industry right away. And then in the summers, I was literally teaching windsurfing up at Deer Creek, believe it or not, here in Utah. And that's how we kind of started things. So we were in the outdoor industry as instructors and pioneers my brother also worked at alta he was he ran the race crew up there so i mean we were you know that was just our day-to-day -day lifestyle was being in the mountains and we were always trying to figure out 
how to hustle and have a side hustle and, and make money. I waited tables all over town. Uh, my brother did the same. I mean, we were both in school at the University of Utah. So it was just, you know, we were trying to have fun and make ends meet. When did you discover that the outdoor industry was an industry? I, it sounds like you got into this, the service side of it, right? Working at the resort. When did you discover that product? I mean, obviously you were working with outdoor products, um, you know, participating in the activities, but when did it really click for you that there's, there's a whole business side of this producing and creating product? Well, good question. I think, you know, early on, we, back when I first moved out here, I mean, I moved here in 1979 to Salt Lake City to go to University of Utah. And uh, so the early 80s was, you know, an investigative time for all of us. We were getting into the different industries, seeing different products. But we grew up in New York. We were the kids who sold everything. You know, we sold light bulbs and burpee seeds and had lawn mowing jobs and gutter cleaning jobs. We were those little entrepreneur kids who had the lemonade on the corner with bubble gum and multiple flavors. We lived close to a beach park. And so everyone would park on our street and we could, you know, hustle those guys and gals who parked on our street. It was just always part of it. We had a, uh, a business in college called B&G Distributors for Burning Greg, my brother. <laughs> and we sold stereo equipment and windsurf gear out of our apartment. So we were always playing around with that whole concept of products, revenue, sales, hustle, how to do it all. And then obviously we got into the outdoor business even more so here uh, by teaching skiing, working at Alta, all of that. And then slowly said, well, you know, the whole idea of the band in Chisco came about when we were living on Maui. So I literally graduated from the University of Utah, 1984 on a Saturday Monday flew to Maui <laughs> to uh, spend the summer there windsurfing because we had been windsurfing here on the lakes, especially Deer Creek. I'd actually been teaching up there and never been to Maui. And it was just the birth of the Maui windsurf scene. And my brother and I moved there in 1984 and uh, he was still in school at the U. We we're going to go for the summer. Well, the end of the summer came. I'm like, I'm staying here. And he came back to Utah to be at the University of Utah. But we were playing around with the idea, excuse me, of a surfboard leash for your watch, because we were brand new to the big waves and we were just getting our butts handed to us and we kept losing our watches. They were just shearing off uh, in the water and then we'd be late for our evening jobs and we'd get fired. And, you know, so we're like, how do we make this watch hang on? And we're like, well, a surfboard leash stays pretty tight through all the poundings of the waves. So let's do that. So we created the product, the wraparound watch band called The Band. And uh, that was on the island of Maui. And we sold the first product there to a buddy's shop in 1985-ish and went to our very first trade show in 1988 and uh, started growing the company from there. I'm always interested in how you go from idea, you know, you, and it always seems to start with, okay, I'm doing the activity. I find a problem that, you know, in, I encounter by doing this activity. And then you try to find other people who also share that same frustration or, or issue. Uh, I, I love the, the hustle part of this. I was actually just talking with another um, founder of a company called Buttermilk Mountain Works started in, in, uh, in, in California. Um, and he was talking about the hustle involved in, you know, going, you know, driving from shop to shop around the country, retail stores and trying to 
hawk your your products and, and sell, you know, try to connect with with retailers. It sounds like maybe that resonates or you did a little bit of that on the islands. Oh, without a doubt. So, you know, we had this idea of this wraparound watch band and everybody said, you know, don't quit the day job. Stupid idea. It's not going to go anywhere. And we were young and dumb and stubborn and said, you know, I, we think there's something here. And so we uh, we were going back and forth. So we were on Maui and then we'd come back to Salt Lake City because we were working at Alta. We'd spend the winters here, summers in Maui. Not a bad way to do it. And we brought the idea back to Salt Lake City and I ended up buying a $20 sewing machine at DI, the Deseret Industries here. Had no idea, had never used a sewing machine. Took it to some really wonderful woman in Holiday, the Singer Sewing Center or something at the time. She showed me how to thread it, how to actually sew a straight line. And I took it back home and showed my brother. And we had some end rolls of webbing and Velcro. So we started creating these watch bands. And we made them for ourselves. And we would just pass them out to friends and say, try it. And it was that whole hustle. And we created the brand name, uh, the band. And that's actually from the old Blues Brothers the original Blues Brothers movie when the sunlight comes through the church and hits Elwood in the face and he starts saying, the band, the band. <laughs> and we watched that on Endless Loop back in the day because it was so damn funny. And that's where the band name came from. Um, and then the company was Chisco, Chisholm Company. That was just kind of how the, the, the company came. But we were known as the Band Brothers forever because that was our first product and our only product for a while. But um, going back to the hustle is we figured out a package. We figured out a logo. Uh, we had someone here in Salt Lake City kind of design it with us. And we were then shipped everything back to Maui in a footlocker, the sewing machine and rolls of webbing and Velcro and packaging and set up shop back on Maui for six months. And it was a two-person company. We would sew all the product. We would sell all the product. And then we would go sailing <laughs> for the afternoon. But we would knock on all the windsurf shops and surf shops that we knew of. And one of our friends, Ralph Siffer, he owned a company called Second Wind. Uh, he was the very first retail store location that ever carried the band. And he wouldn't buy it. <laughs> he said, it's not going to sell. You guys can put it in on consignment. And I'm like, okay. So we had a little display rack and put it on his counter. And lo and behold, it started selling. And, uh, but he, he always laughs. I run into him now and he just cracks up that, you know, he was the very first retail store. And then we knew the other owners. So we got a few more stores going and then we came back again to Salt Lake city and kind of put a plan into place. Um, that was, you know, later eighties, 86, 87. And then 88, we went to our very first trade show, which happened to be outdoor retailer. Um, and that was in Reno, Nevada then before it moved to Salt Lake. So I'm I'm curious. I'm gonna go back a little bit. Um, sure. I, I think it's I think it's um, really powerful. A lot of the companies, you know, around your time and 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 before, there was still like a, a this closeness to the product and the process of creating it. Um, how important was that for you to be the one who first sewed? You know, the initial prototypes, the initial products. Were were doing the production yourselves? I I, I know that's that's very different from. I think where founders are at today, I'm, I'm sure a number of people still still do that. And, and that's how great ideas come about. But you know, it was much more common in, in those days, right? Where you're the user and then you go make a solution for your problem. How important was that for you to, to get behind a sewing machine? 
Uh, it was, well, it, we, we knew no one else could do it. We didn't know you could sub anything out. Um, our mom, of course, her family had a sewing machine growing up. We weren't allowed to touch it because, um, you know, we were boys. She thought we'd break it, which we probably would have. Uh, but the, it was, was important to just understand we wanted to make it a certain way. And I think all the founders of the early companies, they're banging out the parts, even, you know, from Yvonne Chouinard, his story, Chouinard equipment, when he's making his own pitons and his climbing gear the way he wanted to. And then it went from there. And the same thing, we were, we had this idea, we were playing around with different materials until we found something that worked. Um, so it was very important for us to make sure that it worked. We were the ultimate testers early on, and then we could finalize the product the way we wanted it, and hopefully others would want the same. I'm curious who some of, or in terms of companies or individuals, did you have any outdoor industry influences at the time? I, I think about, again, I'm, some of this is just top of mind, but this individual, Alan, um, who started Buttermilk Mountain Works in um, in California? I mean, his influences in the '80s were, oh, Yvonne Chouinard and Patagonia, and you know, the North Face, obviously. And and so you had these heritage outdoor companies that started in the late '60s, '70s. You know, these these foundational brands. Did you have anything like that in Utah? Obviously, the the you know, in Utah, we we don't have a comparable in terms of like a North Face starting in the in the sixties necessarily, but were there outdoor industry influences that you tapped into in the state or even outside the state that inspired um, your work? Yeah. I think in state, it was simply, we were involved in the outdoor industry. I mean, we, we were playing, you know, our joke was we always played with water. We played with it as it was frozen in the, the mountains, um, got to ski on it all winter. We played with it in the rivers as it was flowing down from the mountains um, throughout the spring and summer. And then we got to play with it again in the oceans where it ultimately ended up and kind of based, you know, our, our lifestyle around that as well. Um, but certainly there were companies here that were doing things. You, you mentioned Mother Karen's earlier. We were a big fan of the Mother Karen product. I, I mean, I, we always wore it. You saw these Utah brands up and coming. Um, and one of the uh, companies that we worked with was the Freestyle Watch Company. So Freestyle were the, the kind of the go-to surf watch at the time. They're out of Southern California. And they had webbing watch bands with these little clips that would always pop off. And so we were all using the Freestyle Watch, but we couldn't stand the watch band. So it was kind of the necessity is the mother of invention. And we're like, if we can figure out a better way to hold the Freestyle Watch on, um, and the band was unique because it went through both watch pins. And at the time, basically any watch had three weak points. You had the little spring pins on either side and then the buckle. Well, we eliminated all of that. So we went through both watch pins underneath the watch and then the double Velcro. So there was no buckle. And even if you lost one watch pin, your, your watch still held on. And that was kind of all part of the magic of the band. Um, but freestyle, we were watching what they do, were doing. They were the leader at the time. And then, of course, the Patagonias of the world. I mean, we just saw these companies and we just envisioned building something like that. One of the first things we, uh, on our way to our very first trade show, we had heard of this company, Chums, which we had a long history with. Uh, they were five or six years in business already, had sold their, I think, millionth chum already. And we were driving to our first trade show. So we drove to Hurricane <laughs> to meet Mike Tag at the owner and the founder. 
and take a look at what they were doing to go, okay, I mean, we can probably do something like what they're doing. Mike was not there. We met his cohort at the time, Perry, but we looked around and it was pure bedlam. And we were just cracking up. We're like, we left there after, you know, an hour of kind of getting the quick tour on our way to their very first trade show and went, all right, if they can do that, well, we're going to be fine. Because <laughs> we were just going, man, that was just incredibly crazy, chaotic. And we just were a little more organized, or at least we thought we were. But bottom line is, it was a good inspiration to go, okay, these guys are selling an eyeglass cord that they've got one product. We've got one product right now, a watch band. They seem to be doing fine. We can, we can make this as a go. So that was 87-ish. So yeah, that that was kind of that. You're you're leading my, me into my next question. Um, that it 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 seems really daunting to me personally to jump into the accessories business, right? And and with a single product. To your point, um, I don't know if that's advisable or or not. But but I mean, to your point, it was probably really encouraging to see a chums, right? Which people at the time were probably thinking, "What's a chum?" Right. Um, and and look at them today and obviously your paths intersect again later on multiple um, times yeah yeah so i i just think that's so interesting like what were your thoughts at the time that you know you're kind of putting you're you're going all in on a single product and in the accessories space which i don't know what, what accessories were like at the time was that pe- something people recognized as a big business were other people like a chum starting companies around accessories or it, well, it doesn't they, seem they were difficult. so um you know, all of these companies, you talk to Todd Aronson at Tsunami, he and Sherry started out with headbands mm. and um, Cool, which of course, before it was Cool, it was ALF, where yeah. they started out with a hat. That's true. Okay. Single that product. makes sense. Yeah. And we were all kind of had these single product lines that created more products. Obviously, the band was our first, but we ended up with hundreds and hundreds of SKUs of products in all kind of accessory worlds. And we just decided the accessory end of things. One of the reasons was we could manufacture it ourselves. Once we had webbing and Velcro and labels and trim, we kind of started building upon the inventory of raw goods that we had and said, what can we make from here? So it turned into watch bands, wallets, keychains, belts, backpacks, fanny packs, kid product, dog bowls, collars, leashes. I mean, wow. we took that idea of, the materials at hand and went, okay, what else can we do with this? What other markets can we get into? Um, and what can we literally sew ourselves to make prototypes? Um, you mentioned earlier when we were chatting Wave products. So we went to Wave early on. We, we love those guys. They're still around. Mm-hmm. And they sewed some of the first watch bands for us as, we, as the business grew and we could not handle the volume because it was literally my brother and I sewing all of the product, packaging all the product, delivering all the product, much like Kevin at Cool, much like Todd and Sherry at Tsunami, much like Mother Karen, much like all of these little companies in the beginning. You know, we, we were really uh, the one-stop shop. And when we would get an order, um, <laughs> my brother and I would either shoot pool or play darts to see who had to produce the order. And uh, whoever sewed it didn't have to go sell it and deliver it. I mean, it, we just, it was just crazy in those early days. And I think you can still do that in this day and age. Um, I would never touch an accessory again because, 
you're talking, you know, the average dollar skew going out our door was probably about a buck 50. And you have to sell millions and millions of those, which we did to make it work. But it's a grind. It's such a grind. And, you know, most companies now there's a lot of consolidation, um, which is what we did down the road, you know, years later with chums and other companies. But um, I wouldn't say it's not a don't do it. It's just you just got to the economics have changed dramatically. Right. Yeah. It seems like for most companies, those types of products you're talking about are add-ons, right? It's the thing that you see, you add to your cart as you're checking out. And, um, but I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned this off air, um, but the idea of a lifestyle business and you being lifestyle before lifestyle was maybe really what it is today. And, and I think accessories kind of lends itself to that. Right. And, and, um, I think the outdoor industry is really trying to tap into that, especially now. Right. It's like, how do we, create products that people are going to use on mountain, but, you know, also appeal to people who aren't ever going to go and do the extreme sports that we market. Um, And it seems like a lot of the products that you're producing, these accessory type products, these are things that you're you're going to use, whether you're an outdoor person or not. Right. Did that lead to some of the success of the, the company? Absolutely. Uh, obviously, the, the band started it, and it was specifically for the water sports world, surf, windsurf, kite, all that going on. Um, and then the river runners picked it up because it would not come off. Uh, and that's kind of where we ended up meeting and hearing about chums because Mike Taggart was a river runner. So we got into the more the adventure sports kind of world. The second set of products after the watch band were all of our ski products because we were in the ski industry. And one of our products was the racer wrap. It was the Velcro strap, of course, because we had webbing and Velcro that went around the top of your ski boot. We uh, had a lot of friends who were on the U.S. ski team, Olympic athletes, and they wanted better control of their ski boots. And we're, we're asking us, hey, can you make a cinch strap around the top? And so our product racer wrap, which was one of our trademarks, came out. And it became the de facto go-to strap. And as you know now, every ski boot on the planet has it built in. And it's just, you know, we were part of that early revolution of having a Velcro closure uh, on the top of the ski boot and being able to snug it tight. Um, Then we made boot carriers and ski straps that held your skis together. And uh, we ended up at the early trade shows. One of our um, first private label deals Rollerblade, the company was big at the time, and we made a thing called the Roller Wrap for them under their private brand that they sold for rollerbladers doing the same thing because it was essentially a lightweight ski boot with the wheels on it, but they wanted to cinch it around the um, the ankle, the, the calf, and so we made the Roller Wrap for them, and and uh, it's just you know that led into other things, but you, what you're hitting on is the accessory world. We realize is much bigger. We our products could sell anywhere. We sold in jewelry stores. We sold in drug stores. We sold in convenience stores. We sold in sporting goods shops, of course. But um, And then all the way right up to Walmart. Walmart called us, which was a unique scenario. And they had heard about the band. And people were requesting it at Walmart at the jewelry counter. Mm-hmm. And they gave us a call. And we started a long-term relationship with Walmart. Um, but that was one of the unique things about a non-sports specific, non-gender specific, non-seasonal specific accessory. You can sell it everywhere. And that was one of the huge benefits. 
so can, can you talk about those early trade shows? Um, sure. I, I would love to know a little bit of what was going on in, in the walls of, of a trade show in, in 88. Because, uh, you know, early days of the show, I think the, mature, the, sh- the industry in general is maturing. Like there is a trade show. There's a trade association that's formed. Like this is a really formative time, I think, for the industry in general. There, there's a ton of changes that are coming to massive consolidation is going to start happening or is already happening in the industry, like a lot of changes in the industry. And, and I'm sure you probably saw some of that at, at these shows, right. Where the industry is like really starting to form and it was around, but I think it's really starting to come together and, and turn into more of what we see today. But obviously there's a lot of big differences too, between the show, you know, the, the industry then and now, but yeah. early, early, you know, thoughts around the show then. Yeah, the shows early on were really where everybody did business. I mean, you had to go to the shows. It was just part and parcel of what you did. Um, our first shows were action sports retailer. That's no longer, but it was a big show twice a year. Um, and they did it in Long Beach and San Diego, and it ended up moving around. And then obviously outdoor retailer was a big one. Um, and when it moved to Salt Lake City, I mean, it was just it, it became the behemoth and it became the go-to global outdoor show. We also did the surf expo that's in Orlando, Florida twice a year. We did the ski show that's in Vegas that does now morph with outdoor retailer. We did general merchandise shows. We did accessory shows. We did private label shows. Um, we did the ASI industry, which is, you know, your logo here type shows because we did a lot of private label product. But trade shows, our single biggest advertising budget back in the day were our trade shows. And we started with a little 10 by 10 booth pop up like many, many, many companies. And back in the day, there were a lot of small little companies, you know, hawking their wares. The big guys were there, of course. Uh, The Patagonias, the North Faces, all the well-known brands that had been in existence for a while. But all the little brands were, you know, elbowing in and grabbing space and showing their wares and the first outdoor retailer we did in reno was in a ballroom and you know we had a little little pop-up booth um and there we just we did really well at that show um we had a lot of good interest again we were we were unique you know there was the big brands and then there were a bunch of small little accessory companies so well, I would think uh, how much did personality play into the, su- the success of the band too, right? And the and the tie back to, of course, Blues Blues Brothers. And I mean, there's like how m- I don't think of accessories, and I think personality. I guess <laughs> was that was that a difference maker for people or a selling point that this this brand had a, a culture, for example, or character? Did did is that true? Is that uh, something we- that that helped? Yeah, I would, I would certainly say so. I mean, we had a lot of fun at shows. We, uh, we did this, we had this giant box, uh, acrylic box in the front of our trade show booth, and you'd trade in your old watch band and get one of ours. Mm-hmm. And our entire wall in our booth was Velcro. So there were literally hundreds of watch bands in every conceivable color and style and shape. So it became kind of a feeding frenzy. People would come in, take their old watch band off, throw it in the box, get a new one. Um, and of course, those type of things help to draw traffic um, and just grow it from there. And then what we came out with was the woven trim, which we trademarked. We called it our accents. And that woven trim was sewed onto the watch bands and gave us literally unlimited choice in decoration and color and style. 
And back in the day, we had lots of different artists submit artwork. So our artwork was constantly changing. Uh, we, we had different genres. You know, we had outdoor themes. We had more action sport themes. We had artistic themes. And that really helped grow the business. And then, of course, we took that trim and put it on watch bands, wallets, keychains, neck lanyards, belts, dog collars, leashes. So it all tied together and you could get this ensemble of products that all had a matching trim. And at the time, you know, I'll, I'll just mention Kevin uh, at Cool, back when it was ALF, we shared a lot of same employees. Our production managers knew each other. I mean, we saw everybody at shows. And so we actually were supplying early trim to Kevin at Cool, and he was using it on his collars of his kind of iconic uh, pullovers and shirts and stuff like that. So it's just funny, the, the, the intermingling of all of the, the industries, and we were all trying to help each other out. We did not do clothing, didn't want to do clothing. We were sticking with our accessories. Um, you know, and everyone, like I said, everyone kind of had their niche. We had the webbing Velcro at trim world. Chums had the cotton tube retainer. Crokies out of Jackson Hole had the neoprene uh, eyeglass retainer. The other guy up in Logan had the um, strings. So it was just funny how, and everyone kind of kept their ground. Everyone had their little niche for a right. while. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the, you know, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, the growth of the business and the maturing of the business. Um, I'm always curious that point where you realize, okay, we can't make these by ourselves anymore. Like this is becoming a real business, a quote unquote, real business. Like what, what did those decisions look like? When do you know that, okay, we're going all in on this or, okay, it's time to, to lease a, a larger building and commit to something for five years. You, you, you mentioned that in the notes. Like, What are those decisions like when you have to make some big commitments and you're realizing, wow, this is actually, this is a big deal. This is a big, this is turning into a real company. Yeah. Uh, great question. And I don't know if there's any specific time frame or something that, that occurs, you know, I, I had a great partner, obviously my brother, we were on the same wavelength, which is really nice. You hear a lot of issues with partners, uh, business associates, because people are different. Fortunately, my brother and I wanted to do the same things. We were kind of in the same genre, but we got to a point after our first couple of trade shows in 1988, where we did exceed our capacity to continue to make things. Our very first show, we lined up sales reps. We opened tons of new doors because we were brand new. Uh, we put a bunch of sales reps in place and they were sending in orders daily. So we started trying to find uh, outside contract seamstresses, sewers, you know, people who could sew. And at the time, Utah, believe it or not, was a hotbed of that huge manufacturing going on here. Um, and we tapped into um, the polygamous community <laughs> down in Southern Utah in Hilldale in Colorado City, Arizona. And we found those guys and gals through chums because they were right there in Hurricane and were using some of the polygamous community to do their work. And it turned into a long-term relationship, wonderful people, very different lifestyle, but they, uh, they made most of our products for a long time until we took it overseas. And we really wanted to keep it here. We pumped millions of dollars into Southern Utah 
uh, area outside of out of outside of Hurricane. Um, so once we had some manufacturing in place, that allowed us to continue to expand. And we ran everything out of our house for a while, for about a year. Then we realized, okay, we do need some more space. We ran a little tiny office up in Sugar House, probably 1,200 square feet. Um, moved all the boxes out of our living room and our garage and all that and had a real office. We hired our first employee to pack boxes and help sell and some accounting. Ran that there for a couple of years. And then we did, well, you have to make that big leap. And we rented, we leased a space for five years. It was 7,000 square feet. And we were just going, what are we doing? It was gigantic. You know, this giant warehouse and a couple of office buildings. We actually got to lay out the it was a build to suit. So we got to lay out our offices and that was fun. Um, but we immediately leased it out to a couple of other companies, another set of brothers, believe it or not, uh, Mike and John Liston from Liston Products. Mm-hmm. They were another Utah little startup. They had one or two products. You might want to you know, interview them. But we leased some of our office space out to them and uh, you know, to offset costs. And then the business really started to grow. Um, more and more accounts. Uh, I mentioned earlier on Walmart called us and we opened up in about 800 Walmarts, one of their regions. They had about 2,500 doors at the time. And that, you know, changed. It was a good account. It didn't make or break. It was just a really great account, but we were opening more and more and more accounts all the way across. And um, at about three and a half years into our lease, it's like, okay, we actually have filled this space. We've kicked our tenants out. We've taken over the whole building. Um, Now what's the next step? And we didn't really want to lease yet again, another building. So we started the process of looking for a building to buy. Uh, And a good friend of ours was a commercial real estate guy, guy we went to college with. So we started looking for buildings and it was funny. He showed us this crazy, huge 40,000 square foot building. Very first one. He's like, this is a great deal. And our, our, I mean, our jaws hit the ground. We're like, no way. No. And, just, and it was a disaster. It needed so much work. Um, so we just put it on the back burner. No, not interested. And we went to look at dozens of other buildings. We had multiple offers in on other buildings over the course of a year. Everything fell through. Didn't work. So we kind of at that point, after looking at everything, we're like, hmm, let's go back to that first building. Maybe we buy that and lease out, you know, half of it or a third of it or whatever. And we ended up buying that building, doing a major remodel. um, And yet another friend who had started a totally different business in the electrical world, uh, Hunt Electric, Richard Hunt, he was moving out of his house and moved into our building and he had an entire third of the building to himself and we had the other couple thirds and Richard grew his business in a, one of the biggest electrical companies, contractors in the state. Um, but it was just funny. So he moved in our building before we did and um, we just hustled from there. And then that became our, you know, where we kind of grew the company. Uh, we took over the whole building um, and that's where Chum's, uh, when we merged with Chums back, you know, 15 years ago, they moved into that building with us, and, and then we sold the building and, and the business with to those guys. So, but it's uh, those inflection points. You just, I, I think, you naturally come to them. You're going along, you're forecasting your sales, 
you're certainly taking some flyers. There's no, there's no guarantees, but um, we figured rather than leasing a building, we might as well build some equity. Uh, worst case scenario, we can sell the building, you know, if everything falls apart. Um, so you make some calculated risks, but businesses on an everyday basis, Chase, it's all risky. I mean, we're all taking risks. We're all trying. We're all hustling. Um, you know, with the small dollar accessories, I don't want to say we were recession proof, but we certainly made it through the dips and valleys of the business climate and the business world going on because we were small dollar stuff and people still wanted to spend money. And whether they spent a hundred bucks on a North Face coat or jacket at the time or Patagonia, they may stop that, but they're going to spend five, six bucks on a watch band or a wallet or a keychain or something like that. So we, we, our sales were pretty solid all the way along. Right. Uh, I, I'm always interested in hearing about the, uh, the, the growing pains and you know, maturing brands. And um, I, while we were talking, I sent Mike, Mike a note of, of chums um, just asking him, well, what was the name of, of the individual who ran that sewing facility down, down kind of near, near hurricane Tilton Barlow. Uh-huh. Is that, that was one you, of them. Okay, one, one of them. them. Okay. Well, the the Barlow. I mean, everybody in Hurricane is or Colorado sees either Barlow or Jessup or there's right. only a few families. So okay, yeah. He he. I talked to him recently, and he, he talked a lot about that being a really important part of growing growing chums as well. So yeah, oh, um, um, I'm curious uh, again. So you're in this growing phase, you know, especially 95 to 2000. Um, and then you're buying companies. When did you ever think when, when you were, you know, in Hawaii making, you know, bands by your, you probably never would think, Oh, we're going to be big enough that we go and acquire other companies. What, what went into some of those decisions as you're growing, you're probably looking for other, you know, synergies with other brands, opportunities to grow into new categories, but what motivated some of the, or like the acquisitions you got involved in? Well, you hit it on the head because everyone started, I said earlier, we were all kind of playing in our own lanes and Mm -hmm. everyone kind of had their own product lines and we kept away. Like with Chums, Mike Taggart was a good friend. We saw him at all the shows. We were, they were, we were CHI Chisco. He was CHU Chums. So we were literally one after another in the directories. We typically had our booths close by, we shared a lot of the same reps. We shared a lot of employees, um, employees who were at Chums when they grew tired of Little Hurricane and, and decided to come to Salt Lake City. We were always the first stop because we were doing the same thing with just different products. We actually tried to buy Chums from Mike Taggett um, in the early days of outdoor retailer when it moved to Salt Lake. He did not want to do that. And what was happening was there was mass consolidation in the buying department of the big major sporting goods shops. They didn't want to buy watch bands from one company, eyeglass cords from another company, keychains from another company, dog collars and leashes from this company. They wanted a one-stop shop. They just wanted to make their life easier. So the buyers were basically telling us, hey, if you have eyeglass cords, we'll buy them from you. We like how you guys work. You know, you guys have been easy to work with. And so we didn't want to just go copy like many others did. We were like, okay, let's let's take one of the brands if we can, you know, merge together somehow. Um, and Mike Taggett didn't want to do that at the time. And we told him exactly. I mean, we had a great meeting. I mean, I remember the day we were sitting at outdoor retailer outside, my brother and I and Mike, and 
Like we have to get into the eyeglass retainer business because our customers are demanding it and we'd love to do it with you. And he said, no. So we said, okay, but we're going to get into this business. And we ended up merging with a company called Shockers. We bought them. They were out of Portland, Oregon. And we had been working with Phil Riley, the owner of that company for years. We were printing a lot of his product because we had a, we had Chisco specialized printing, another side hustle business inside of our business. Um, and we were printing some of his products for him and helping him make stuff. So we had a long-term relationship with him as well. And we ended up buying his entire company and we dropped the Shockers brand name and turned that all into Chisco. So those products came down and we had a whole line of eyeglass retainers now. And now it was kind of game on. And everybody at that point started basically mirroring everything. And there were three or four companies that basically all sold the same type of stuff. And just like nowadays, you can, I mean, think of how many puffy jackets are out there that are stitch for stitch identical. They're only determined by a little quarter inch logo on the front left chest or shoulder. Um, and we were a great brand, you know, Chisco is a great brand. We served people well, um, we shipped on time, uh, the products were good and we just were building, uh, the brand from there. So well, it seems like, um, you know, moving forward a few years with all of these larger forces at play, right. Consolidation and, um, maybe, you know, comp- the, the challenge to differentiate yourselves, it's, there's a need to come together. I, I'd be curious to hear what motivated eventually these two companies that seem destined to collide again, um, Chums and, and the band to come together in 07. What, yeah. what motivated some of those decisions to, well, that decision to come, come together and, and eventually merge? Yeah. Oh, again, just going back to what we were talking about, the markets, there was consolidation going on everywhere. Um, Mike Taggett actually did end up selling it and he ended up selling it to a gentleman and his, his son and son-in-law. And when that happened, we went and met with those guys and basically said, Hey, look, we were, we've been talking to Taggett forever about, you know, merging these companies and we should keep that in mind. If, you know, we know you just bought them We keep that in mind. If you ever want to do it, we just figured they're, you know, two Utah companies together it's, it's the basic consolidation concept. You get rid of so many overlaps and can put some more margin to the bottom line. Your, your sales reps, your, your, all your SG&A expenses. I mean, just looking at a basic business, it made sense. We can consolidate shipping, billing, all of that. And then we ended up putting that together in 2007 and the two companies did merge. Uh, Mike Taggart was out of the loop at that point. So we merged with um, the the current owners of chumps. So, and then the next year you, you and your brother step away. Um, I guess what, after 20 years, which yeah. doing anything for, I'd say even five years is, is, special, <laughs> you know, or, or even a year at, you know, that's, but 20 years, that's significant to, to go and build something as big as you did. Um, what, what went into what, I guess, what was the thought process moving on from, from something that you'd been doing really since you'd graduated from, from college? Yeah. Uh, good, good question as well. Um, bottom line is we were essentially burned out doing what we were doing. The accessory world is a grind. Um, we wanted to merge. We, you know, I, I hate to say it, but the, the merger didn't go well. Um, we merged with a gentleman who was just, 
a, a thief and a liar. And it, there's nothing else to say. I won't mention any names, just um, everything that was talked about early on is not what how it happened. So we left and it just became a legal nightmare and it wasn't pleasant and it wasn't certainly the way we wanted it. But bottom line, when you're a small company, you've got three choices. You can close your doors and just shut down, which we've all seen happen. You can sell your company um, and you can merge with another company or be acquired by another company. And we didn't want to just shut the doors. We didn't want to sell it because we knew at the time to sell it, then we have to, we go along with it. And the idea of merging with another company and creating a bigger company, um, my brother and I owned it 50-50. So, you know, the, kind of the joke is rather than owning 50% of the grape, maybe we own a slice of the watermelon, so to speak. Um, so we thought if we could merge the company, and then we were talking about other companies to merge with and just create a, an accessory powerhouse, you know, in this small little world we were in. Um, but just bringing a couple of companies together and creating a bigger entity where we could command more market share and the buyers literally would have to talk to us because we had all the, the little accessories that people sold. So, but we were just, you know, as a small business, we'd, we'd seen it all. I mean, you, you name it with employee issues. We had every single one you can imagine. Um, 20 years was a good run. We all wanted to do something a little different. And um, so it gave us a good opportunity when we merged and then moving away, it allowed us to go, you know, in different directions too, which was really nice. So it all worked out fine. It's just, you know, it's the ups and downs of any small business. Right. Um, I'm curious uh, and and I'm surprised we didn't touch on this earlier, but um, maybe it's because there weren't any major conflicts between your partner, but what was it like working with your brother for all these years? Um, I mean, you're always cautioned, you know, you, you know, you have to be very careful about who your co-founder is. Right. And um, some people have certain feelings about getting into business with friends or family, but what, what was that experience like? Did you have certain specialties? Did one of you handle one aspect of the business versus the other? Like is, and that's why you worked really well together. What, what was it like working with, with family? Um, it was great. We had a really good run, you know, uh, he's my younger brother and he, followed a lot of my footsteps early on. I moved to Utah to ski. He followed me out here to the University of Utah. We both went to Maui together. Um, we both created the product together and it was just very natural. We got along really well and we did have completely opposite kind of specialty, so to speak. Um, he was really good with the numbers. He was really good with the computer systems. He did the accounting and um kept the computer systems running, kept a lot of the, he was, he was good with the employees. I was more marketing, sales, branding, uh, conceptual, artistic side, not to say he wasn't, but we just, it worked really, really well for a long time. Were there yelling matches? <laughs> of course. But um, the beauty was we started the business um, and I, we talked about this maybe earlier before we even got on the call, um, our, our mom got sick and was gone in a few short months. And that really basically set everything in motion. And we both looked at each other and went, wow, we could, the same thing could happen to us. She was healthy. She was well. And then she's no, you know, no longer with us. And that was 1987. And that really kicked us into saying, huh, we, we've started this business. Let's run it. Let's 
Let's enjoy the passage of time. Let's be in fun industries and have this kick off enough cash where we can live. We weren't trying to turn it into what it eventually was. We just simply wanted to make enough money to enjoy life, play outside, be in the water, be in the mountains in the winter, be in the ocean in the summer, play, you know, in, in between everything else in the mountains, you know, whether it's mountain bike riding, whether I did a lot of hang gliding in the early days and, and flying and stuff like that. So we, we just were always outdoor people and we just wanted to do that. So there was a really kindred spirit. We wanted the same things and he knew me and I knew him and bottom line is we trusted each other and it worked really well for a long time. That's great. Um, I, I'm curious of the next phase for you. Cause I know you've, you've stayed close to the industry and are still involved um, in, in an out with an outdoor business that you run. Maybe speak to that a little bit. How have you tried to stay connected to the industry and what are you, what are you doing currently to stay connected to all things sure. outdoor industry besides playing? It sounds like yeah. you're doing a lot, a lot outside still, which is great. Well, I'll always do that. I mean, that's still the, the basis for everything is, um, you know, if you're not laughing and loving and having fun every day, something's wrong. Uh, my my line, to, you know, I've, I've got two two children. One's 21, just turned 18, and you know, um, enjoy every day. And we get one ride on this spinny blue planet. Let's make it a good one. Um, and I don't think many people are on there last later years saying I should have worked more. I don't think that really comes up too much. Um, so once we left the business, we kind of, my brother and I kind of went our separate ways. I was married, had two young kids. Um, he had dogs and a, and a great girlfriend. They've been together now. They're married. But he, uh, he moved to Hawaii full time. And I stayed here in Salt Lake because my kids, my, my family was here. And we both were basically in the consulting side of things in the outdoor industry. That's where we've been since we were little kids. And that's where we stay. He did a bunch of it um, and still doing some of that as well. Um, and I created my company, High Mount Marketing, and I work with companies, large and small, who want to do what we did, you know, long ago. And I can give them practical, absolute, been there, done that, hands-on experience and help guide them around the pitfalls, around the the potholes and help them get to us from a straight line from point A to point B of where they want to go. And it's really fun because I see myself in these entrepreneurs and they're young and old. I mean, they're, they're every age. It's not, they're just young kids. Um, I work with a company called Grow Utah. Mm. They're a nonprofit and we do a product accelerator, a 10 week cohort. We do it a couple of times a year. We just finished up and we had, nine participants in the last 10 week cohort. One of them, 70 year old guy coming out with some brand new accessory products and just loving life. It was great to see that. And uh, we had everything in between, you know, we had a couple of guys who were creating a flying machine um, and then some accessory products and some service products. But that allows me to keep my finger on the pulse, see some new innovation, um, help entrepreneurs, grow their companies. And I've got 30 plus years of contacts that I can just pave that way and smooth their ride completely and help these young entrepreneurs, young and old entrepreneurs do what they do. So it's really fun. That's, that's great. 
Well, I've got a couple questions, I guess, about um, these are some deep cuts. And I'm curious if you uh, have any insights to some of these companies here in Utah, just since you were you were in the business. I'm trying to piece together the history here. Um, so maybe kind of as a to wrap up our conversation a little bit. Have you ever heard of a company called American Ecosystems that created the Instadome in Utah? <laughs> I have not. Okay. Darn. Okay. That one I'm going to keep working on. I, that's, that's a deep cut. I, I, uh, it was in a, a publication that national outdoor outfitters news magazine, and there's a picture of the Instadome made by American ecosystems in Salt Lake city in 1978. And I haven't been able to track it down. So, well, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in Utah in 78. But, okay. Um, you know, so that predates me, but it sounds interesting. I'll keep, I'll keep looking. <laughs> There's not a lot of tent companies out there besides, you know, obviously in Utah, we've got spring bar, but um, that that's when I'm still hunting down. Uh, this one was also before you shut up, but, but I think continued on while you were there. Lone peak design. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, of course, Volet, we talked about, yep. I'd be curious, your early thoughts of wave. That's a company that has a lot of personality. And as I know, is also in a revival stage, the company's changed hands now and yep. they built their first website, um, this year or this last year, um, yep. which is amazing considering they started in 79. Um, yep. no, but wave, wave was one of the first and only places you could go to simply get something sewn together. Everything was custom. They were they had their products. They had the fly fishing carriers. They uh, had a variety of their own products, you know, and backpacks and stuff like that. But they were just the coolest. It's always good to go in there and see what they were doing. But if you had something like a duffel bag ripped, you could go in there and they'd sew it up. One of their things back in the day for all the trade show companies is they would make the giant rug roller bags. So you, you go to your trade show and you have, you have your rolled up rug and they would make these gigantic 10 foot long bags specifically for your uh, floor rugs, for your trade shows, you'd roll them up, stick them in their giant handles and you know, you, you'd ship it out to them. And like I said, they made the f- several first rounds of the band. Um, we got them set up for production because we were just, we were outgrowing our single sewing machine. Um, that had been flying back and forth between Maui and Salt Lake City. So the Wave guys and gals did uh, uh, several production runs early on. And um, yeah, I've been in their facility more times than I can think of over the time. So Well, it's for, for me, and I'm, I'd be curious to hear what you think of this. Like we, we have a number of these outdoor companies um, that I think are going through a little bit of a revival. Um, Wave for one is... Um, you know, big changes there and they're making core products now, not doing as much custom work. And, and it's great to see them um, up and running and with a, an online presence and uh, because they are one of those key outdoor companies in Utah um, that's been doing it for so long. Mother Karen's um, was dormant for a long time or really non-existent. And then um, a, a friend of mine out of, out of New York who, you know, spent some time in Utah and developed a connection to the company um, wanted to revive it. And so worked with the family and, and created a new run of, of some of their iconic jackets and, and now are selling them through motherkarens.com and, and really trading on that nostalgia and, you know, that connection that people have with, with companies. Um, I guess any thoughts there, I think there's some power in that, right? Like people have an attachment to brands. I guess it goes to show that the power of brand 
and attachment that people develop, even, you know, even with companies like this, I think, I think that's really interesting to me personally. Brand is key. Brand is what you build. Um, brand is what sells. Brand is your, your exit, so to speak. Um, my, one of the things I, I tell all the young entrepreneurs that I work with is it really is about brand. Some people say, oh, you know, I've got this great thing, this great product, this great invention, whatever. And the invention's only as good as the brand behind it. Um, if you take the top 10 running shoes, peel off the little half inch by half inch logo, stick them in a basket, shake them up and lay them out. Nobody will be able to tell you which is which. They're all incredibly well-made. They're all unique fabrics, unique looks and feel. The reason you buy a product is because you tell yourself a story about that product and that brand. And that brand means something to you and it means something to other people. You're either a Patagonia or, you know, the Patagucci, you're either Patagonia or maybe you're a Columbia or maybe you're a North Face person, but there's an affinity to a brand name, what it represents, what it speaks for. And that's what you build as a company founder. And you can have the greatest products, but products will get ripped off. It's tough to rip off the brand. And so when you say something like Mother Karen's, they were so iconic and had a unique uh, color palette and color blocking back in the day. Their pullover was the, the go-to, uh, you know, anorak at the time, pullover. Um, and it's great. I did not know that someone had revived it. I'll have to talk to Karen and, and Red, her husband, and, and check in with them. That's, that's good to hear. But the brand is, you, you look at Patagonia, what they've done. You look at what Kevin's done at Cool. Uh, you look at what um, Wally's done at Vole. These are companies that have been around 40 years now. And they all were on the brink of going out of business a lot. I mean, Chenard almost went into bankruptcy with Chenard climbing equipment back when they had, they had the harness issue. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Yvonne did, he's like, there is absolutely no way I'm going to bankrupt my own company uh, or excuse me. He said he would bankrupt the company versus, rather than admit that his harness caused the problem. There, sadly, there was a, a fatality, but he didn't want to, and he didn't accept that it was his harness, which it wasn't. From the stories that I've heard, the person simply didn't tie in properly, and and you know there was an issue. But he believes so much in his brand that he's like, you know, I'll bankrupt the company, and he ended up selling. Chenard to the employees, as you probably know, and that became Black Diamond. And Peter Metcalf was CEO and the main driving force. And they moved from Venture, the old Patagonia headquarters to here. And he focused on the soft goods on Patagonia, the, the clothing brand. But the brands mean something. And the founders who create those brands, they have a story behind it. And that story resonates with a certain group of people. And that's the, the power of the brand. I think that's a, a great place to, to leave off and, and a nice, uh, I, I think a, um, a good pitch for anyone who needs your consulting services, right? <laughs> like if this is what you do um, and, and there's a reason that people come to you for, for your, your thoughts and, and services. So um, that's a good pitch. Um, yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. If they can go to highmountmarketing.com. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time um, just to share your story and insights and 
And again, I, I think some of their, you know, it's, it's nice for me to be able to, you know, get some of the pieces filled in, in the timeline of Utah outdoor history. And, and, um, I'm glad that we can, um, make sure that you're, you're in that timeline, which you are, but, um, in terms of putting an oral history together. So I appreciate you taking the time to share, share your insights and help us put some of the pieces together. This has been fun to learn more about, um, everything that you did. Uh, well, thank you, Chase. Uh, absolute pleasure being part of it. Thank you for thinking of us. Our, we had a tiny little company. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and glad to be part of this. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.